You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We've been working through the book of Hebrews chapter by chapter. We've talked about the overall goal and purpose of the book of Hebrews is to help us see that Jesus is better than the things found in the Old Testament, that the things in the Old Testament actually point us to Jesus and create expectation for Jesus, and that we should not leave Jesus in the midst of trials and temptations. When things get hard and when things get tempting, we should run to Jesus rather than fleeing from him. And we've talked about how he's better than prophets and angels. He brings a better message. Chapter 2, a message that we should not neglect or drift from. Chapter 3, a message that we should not harden our hearts to. Um, Chapter 4, a message that we should believe in, which leads to uh, spiritual rest. Um, Hebrews chapter 5, a message that we should be ready to teach to others um, as we mature and grow. Hebrews chapter 6, a reminder to us that when we uh, express faith and trust in Christ, once we're saved, we're always persevering. We we don't fall away from the faith. And then the last couple of weeks we've seen in Hebrews chapter 7 and chapter 8 how Jesus is a better priest how he executes a better covenant, what we understand here in the New Testament. And it's not that salvation is different in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We said last week that salvation's always been the same. It's always been expressing faith and trust in Jesus um, and what God has said, and that's just increased over time. What God has said and what we are called to trust in and believe in has only increased. And so salvation's always been based on faith, on faith, never on animal sacrifices, never on good works. It's always been based on uh, faith in what God has said. And so last week we, we talked about living obediently from an inward desire rather than outward compulsion. That's one of the things that changes in the new covenant. The Bible talks about the law of God being written on our hearts. And so we're, we're compelled to do this from an inward desire and not just outward conformity. We talked about pursuing intimacy personally, that we don't have to wait on someone else to teach us about God, that, that we can know God through the Holy Spirit. And we talked about enjoying daily God's mercy rather than feeling guilt and despair, that through Jesus's work, we experience a cleared conscience and we don't have to feel guilty for our sins. We can experience that forgiveness. And we talked from an application point last week, how we need to be ready to forgive other people because of the amount that we've been forgiven. That, that it should compel us and lead us to be very forgiving people. When we interact with other people and we're uh, wronged by other people, we should be very quick to forgive them because we've been forgiven much as well. All right, so that brings us to Hebrews chapter 9, a pretty lengthy discussion, again, on the Old Covenant, specifically talking about the tabernacle, the tent of worship, the place of meeting where the sacrifices took place. And so we get a lot of discussion about Uh, Jesus' sacrifice being better, um, him being in the heavenly temple versus the earthly temple and how that's better. Um, And so a lot of discussion about the tabernacle. We see some good things about the tabernacle. We see some inferiorities about the tabernacle, why it wasn't good enough. And so we're going to talk about those things in length today. From a summary sentence standpoint, while the old covenant was unable to purify consciences or provide access to God for the common man, Jesus brings eternal redemption through the new covenant, enabling us to serve God faithfully while waiting for him eagerly. Okay, so the old covenant, the two things that are highlighted constantly in this chapter, it could not purify the conscience of the worshiper. All it could do was kind of fix an external aspect. It could not purify the conscience because you never, you never felt like your sins were forgiven forever. 
because you knew that if you sinned again, you would have to offer more sacrifices. So they were never dealt with and finished with. And even then, the idea that the animal sacrifices were constantly being offered, it, it helped the worshiper understand, man, these sacrifices just aren't good enough. The fact that I have to keep offering them um, may, makes me realize they're not good enough. And the fact that we have to keep adding priests makes me realize the priests aren't good enough. And think about the priest and how the, 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 the long-term vision for their job, like they know for the rest of my life, I will have to continue to do this. We'll never get to a point where we say, that's enough blood, that's enough animals, right? And so it could never purify the conscience of the people. It could never provide access to God for the common man. We're gonna see that today, the way the tabernacle was laid out. The common person could never get to the most holy place. He could never get into the holy of holies. Even our author is talking about it as though uh, he doesn't have full detail about it because he's never been in there either. And so it was cut off. God's presence was cut off from the common man. You had some priest that could go into the, most, into the holy place. You had one priest that could go into the most holy place, right? And so um, it could never provide access to God for the common man. But Jesus shows up and he brings eternal redemption. He brings the purifying of the conscience. He brings direct access to God. And that enables us to serve God faithfully while waiting for him eagerly. For our kids, the tabernacle helps us see that before Jesus came to save us, man was separated from God because of sin. Like that's the big teaching point of the tabernacle is that sin separates us from God. And you have this veil, this curtain that keeps man from being able to go into the most holy place where God's presence was dwelling. And it's not until Jesus comes and dies on the cross and that veil is ripped that, that man does gain access to God's presence, okay? So from an introductory standpoint, the tabernacle was the ultimate symbol of man's inability to draw near to God. It was a system of barriers between the worshiper and God. You had the holy place, the most holy place. You had the cherubim even on top of the Ark of the Covenant that, that kind of protected God's presence, real similar to what we see in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are cast out two cherubim are placed at the, at the entrance to the Garden of Eden so that no man can come back in. So you have that similar picture of the, over the Ark of the Covenant, these cherubim kind of protecting God's presence and, and keeping man from the presence of God. And as long as God demonstrated his presence in a tabernacle with two chambers like this, he was showing that man was not free to access him. All right, so the tabernacle, it's a big teaching tool. It's, it's revealing to us a lot about our sin and a lot about our inabilities to fix ourselves. Some of the restrictions that we see from the tabernacle. Only the high priest could access God. He could only do it one time a year and he always had to come in with blood. That's what the passage here in chapter nine tells us. That man was cut off from God and only one man could access God and he could only do it one time a year and he had to bring blood with him in order to do it. These two great flaws of the old covenant Restricted access to God and incomplete cleansing. Our consciences could not be fixed. Which brings two great solutions in the new covenant, that we have unlimited access to God and complete cleansing. We're gonna continue to see as we move through Hebrews how we're now called to draw near to God, to approach him with confidence in ways that people in the Old Testament could not. So the flaws of the old covenant, it restricted access to God. It was incomplete cleansing. The solutions in the new covenant, unlimited access to God, and complete cleansing. In addition to that, the new covenant shifts our focus from a central location of worship to a variety of places to worship, right? In John chapter four, when Jesus is talking to the woman, she, she brings up this question and she says, you know, 
We've been told that you can only worship in Jerusalem. You can only worship at the temple. And we live over here in Samaria and we're not even allowed to really go there because we're kind of rejected by the Jewish people. And Jesus tells her and, and, he, and he creates an anticipation in her that a time is coming when people will worship him in spirit and in truth and it won't be tied to a location, right? So in the new covenant, we see um, more uh, worship being more about the person of Jesus than an actual place or position of worship, right? There's nothing special about this building right here. When we outgrow it or can't afford it, we'll relocate somewhere else, right? And, and at that point, it'll, it'll be where we, have, where we have our church gathering then, and, and it'll be okay, right? Like we, we met in a dirty building at the, at the park where it smelled funny, and there were, there were bugs everywhere at times. And, and then we moved out of there, and we got something nicer, but, but God's always been with us in both locations, right? Like we didn't need a special place of worship to meet with God. That's kind of different in the new covenant, okay? Um, I want to pause right here real quick, and Tyson sent me a tool that he uses in his class that I thought would be helpful to use this morning. So we're going to see if we can get this to work. Near the entrance to the main tabernacle structure was the bronze labor, which the, the tabernacle of... Me and AJ tested this out last night, so hopefully it'll work. Okay, so this app is available, I know for sure, for Apple users. So if you're not an Apple user, you'll have to rely on Ben to find the counterpart to it. Um, but it's called Tabernacle 3D iOS that you can search in your app store if you have an Apple device, okay? But I'm going to show you kind of how it works because it's a great um, picture. Uh, it's, a, it's a 3D experience of the Tabernacle um, and kind of talks you through like some of the purposes of the different elements within it. The Bible reports that Moses received detailed instructions for the building of the tabernacle while atop Mount Sinai. The entire structure was portable and was carried by the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. All right, so you got a, you got a visual picture there and you can, you can move around on it with the app, which is pretty cool. Um, so you've got this outer area the fenced area, and then you've got the inner area, which is the, the actual tabernacle piece that we talk about here in chapter 9 with the holy place and the most holy place. And I don't know about you, like when you think about the size of this, like you may have thought of something, you know, rather large. It's, it's probably smaller than the room that we're in right now. Um, and so it was not a ginormous thing. And the only people that were in there were some of the priests, and then only people in the back part was the one priest, the high priest, that went in there one time a year. Okay, so it was, a, it was a pretty small area where a lot of this stuff took place. The people of Israel entered the tabernacle from the east side through an opening made of blue, purple, and scarlet fabric. Only Israelites were allowed to enter the tabernacle and only while in a state of ritual purity. All right, and so this is where the common man is, is given access to worship God but he's limited in what he can even do. The bronze altar of sacrifice stood in the outer court and was used by the priests for animal sacrifices and burnt offerings. Five types of sacrifices were offered on the altar, four being animal sacrifices, and the fifth an offering of grain or cereal. Each type of sacrifice was offered in a unique way. For animal sacrifices, in general, an Israelite would bring their animal to the north side of the altar, place their hands on the head of the animal, and then slit the throat of the animal as the priest caught the blood in a dish. 
The priest would then, depending on the type of sacrifice, dab the blood onto the horns of the altar and pour out or splash the blood against the sides of the altar. Only for the burnt offering was the entire animal burned. For the other four types of sacrifices, a portion of the offering was eaten by the priests or by the family who brought the sacrifice. And there's different options here. We're not going to go through all of them. We're just going to go through the pieces that are relevant for what we're discussing this morning. The tabernacle proper, meaning the main tent structure, was divided into two main rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies. The structure was made of 48 panels set in 96 silver bases with rods running down the sides to tie the panels together. They were then covered by four layers, first by colorful woven fabric embroidered with cherubim, second, a loomed goat hair tent fabric, third, by red dyed ram skins, and fourth, a layer of durable leather. The first of the rooms, the holy place, was entered through a veil, again made of blue, purple, and scarlet, like the curtain at the outer entrance gate. Only the priests, who had to be descendants of Aaron, could enter this room. There's some different options for finding out what all the different pieces do. Um. The veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies was made of the same color as the clothing of the high priest, blue, purple, and scarlet, but without the gold. Embroidered on the veil were cherubim, heavenly protectors depicted with wings, which symbolically guarded the entrance that led into the presence of the Lord. Only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies on one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, which is in the autumn of each year. When entering the Holy of Holies, the high priest did not wear the colorful golden garments, but only the white linen garments. As the high priest entered this most sacred room, he would first burn incense before the ark, filling the room with smoke. He then exited and then re-entered the Holy of Holies with blood from the sacrifice, which he sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant seven times. As Israel was not allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, the high priest represented all of Israel, making atonement first for his own sins and then for the sins of Israel through the blood of the sacrifice. The Ark of the Covenant was made of acacia wood and covered with pure gold. Inside the Ark was the tablets of stone upon which were written the Ten Commandments. According to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the Ark also contained a container of manna, the Israelites' source of food as they wandered in the wilderness, and the rod of Aaron. Atop the Ark was the covering, often called the mercy seat with two cherubim made from solid gold. These cherubim stretched their wings over the ark, symbolically guarding the place where the presence of the Lord would dwell. All right, so that gives you kind of a visual picture of some of the things that are going on in um, chapter 9 here. I would encourage you to get the app. Um, It's certainly a great teaching tool um, to use with kids, I think, and, and we'll probably educate you a little bit too as well on some of the ways that the different items were used within um, the tabernacle. 
you know, as, I, as I've been studying this, I think what's difficult for us as we talk about, man, we need to appreciate this. We need to be thankful for, for what Jesus is in light of the old covenant. It's sometimes hard to appreciate something that's always been that way for you, right? Like if you try to talk to our kids that are growing up now and you tell them to be thankful for something like a cell phone, like that, that's, that's all they've ever experienced, right? And, and you can tell them all the stories that you want about how your phone was attached to the kitchen wall and, and you had to take turns using it if you had multiple siblings wanting to talk to friends and how you didn't have access to your friends constantly all the time. I mean, I was, we were even talking over Thanksgiving about how there was one night where I was running late and, and having to get home for curfew and there was no way to let your mom know, hey, I'm gonna be there in like two minutes, right? Like unless you stop and use the payphone, I mean, you were just kind of stuck and so mom would wait up for you and you had no way to connect with her because you didn't have a cell phone. And so you can tell your kids, hey, appreciate appreciate the fact that you have this device that keeps you connected and that we have the different advantages that come with it, but it's what they've always experienced, right? For us, maybe something similar. I remember my granddad talking about how they used to have ice delivered to their house. Like the ice man would bring like this big block of ice. And I'm thinking like, like what in the world? Like I get frustrated when my ice machine's not working, but I certainly don't think to be thankful for it every single day. You know, I get up and expect it to produce ice. And there was a time not that long ago where people had to order their ice and have it delivered to them because they didn't have ice machines in their house. And so it's hard for us to be thankful for things that we've always experienced it that way. So when we come to the book of Hebrews and we're reading about the old covenant in light of the new covenant, it's hard sometimes for us to appreciate it because it's always been this way for us. We never had an experience where we had to bring animal sacrifices for worship to atone for our sins. We don't know what that was like, and so we can talk all we want about how we need to be thankful for it, but unless we really spend some time meditating on what that would have looked like, it probably goes right over our head, and we're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm thankful for that, but it doesn't really resonate with us because we don't know any different, and so I hope that you'll continue to look at these chapters that we're going through and really try to spend some time meditating on what life could have been like for us under the old covenant and some of the disadvantages that came with that and how Christ has come to be superior within the new covenant, okay? Um, So when we think in terms of the tabernacle, I think there's some adequacies of the tabernacle that are worth mentioning, some sufficiencies of the tabernacle, meaning what was the tabernacle good for, okay? So I want us to look at that as we get into this chapter. And for our kids, how the tabernacle was good, it helps us understand that a blood sacrifice is needed for sin, That's one of the good things that came from this. Yes, it teaches us that sin separates us from God, but it also teaches us the fact that blood sacrifice is necessary for God's wrath to be appeased. And that's what the children of Israel were going through constantly with these sacrifices. And what we find here in the text is there were some good things about the tabernacle, things that it taught us. First of all, it was instituted and regulated by God for specific purposes for a specific time. It was not a bad system, but it was a flawed system, but it was flawed by design. Okay, so here's where we we don't want to mistakenly think that God created a system that didn't work. God knew that it didn't work when he instituted this system. He instituted it to teach the need for something better. Okay, so it's a flawed system, but it's flawed by design, but it was instituted and regulated by God for specific purposes. One of those purposes, number two, is that it reminds us of our sinfulness. Hebrews chapter 10, which we'll get into next week, verse three, in these sacrifices, there is reminder of sins every year. 
It was certainly a teaching tool for the children of Israel, and it certainly teaches us today about the seriousness of our sin. Number three, it reminds us of God's sovereign plans. It reminds us of God's sovereign plans. The author is very careful to mention some of the contents of the Ark of the Covenant. And one of the contents, one of the things that's in the Ark of the Covenant is Aaron's staff that budded. If you want to take some time to read this story on your own, it comes from Numbers chapter 17. And in that story, there was debate and grumbling and complaining and and revolting by some of the people thinking that Moses and Aaron had kind of constructed things for their benefit. And so they were kind of in charge and doing things and other people were wondering, well, why not us? And so God decided to, to set everything straight that it's not Moses and Aaron that are dictating anything, that it's his sovereign plan. He's the one that's instituting things the way that they are. And so everybody had to bring a staff and produce a staff from the different tribes and, and whoever staff budded, whichever staff which was dead produced buds, it was that one who was gonna fall in the, the responsibilities that Aaron had been doing. And it's Aaron's staff that buds. And so kind of puts to bed everybody's complaints that, that Moses was just playing favorites with his brother. Right, And so God's sovereignty is seen through the tabernacle, through the display of Aaron's budded rod. Number four, it reminds us of God's faithful provision. It also contained the, the urn of manna, which was a, a visual reminder, a, uh, a reminder to the people that, that God had provided for them faithfully when there was no food. And so they had stored that away in the Ark of the Covenant to be a permanent reminder to them that God had provided when they needed it most. And then number five, it reminds us of God's good character. With the content of the Ten Commandments, we're reminded of God's good character and, and how he reveals his moral character to his people. It's interesting to note that Jesus comes and fulfills these three things, that, that he comes and is the appointed better priest. Aaron was the appointed priest for a time. Now Jesus comes from a different order. Jesus is the bread of life. And so while God provided manna, he provided this bread for the people. He provides something far superior in Jesus. And then Jesus comes to fulfill the requirements of the Ten Commandments for us, we're told in uh, the book of Romans. Number six, it also informs us that God requires blood for forgiveness. This is how God operates. Why does Jesus have to come and die and shed his blood for us? It's just the way God's designed things. And God is revealing to his people how he operates. And so the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross makes sense in light of the fact that the children of Israel were called to offer animal sacrifices throughout their history. And so it makes very, very much sense for Jesus to come in that context and to die on the cross because Jesus is the fulfillment of what God says is required, that blood has to be shed, death has to occur for forgiveness of sins. Number seven, it informs us that God enacts covenants with blood. There's the discussion about the the testament or the will and how blood is necessary for it to to be enacted upon. And there's real interesting language used in Exodus chapter 24 when Moses is instituting the old covenant and how it parallels what Jesus says in the new covenant. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Right, and so Moses is describing the covenant is now in effect because of the blood that's being shared here. And then you fast forward to the New Testament where Jesus is talking with his disciples and instituting the new covenant. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, as they're 
instituting the Lord's Supper, he says, likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Real similar language that Jesus uses in comparison to what Moses uses in the Old Testament. Both of them are talking about blood being shed. Both of them are talking about covenants being enacted. And it's part of how God operates. Number eight, it provided a way for man to express faith and repentance. So while animal sacrifices don't save us and they're insufficient in themselves to to purify our consciences and to solidify our redemption, they were a way for man to express faith and repentance. Okay, And so when we talk about faith in God, we're talking about the, the, their expression of that faith. And so while we would say that Old Testament people were saved by faith, people who were saved in the Old Testament offered sacrifices because it was an expression of their faith and repentance. Okay, And so it gave them a way to express that faith and repentance that was taking place on their inward heart. So there's some adequacies. There are some good things about the tabernacle, some things that it teaches us. So it's profitable in some ways. But there's some inferiorities of the tabernacle as well. For our kids, how's the tabernacle broken? It could not fix man completely with its animal sacrifices. It could not fix man completely with its animal sacrifices. Number one, it was an earthly establishment that only shadowed the better heavenly reality. An earthly establishment that was simply a shadow of something better in the heavens. Everything about the tabernacle is pointed to something greater, something better. It says in verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption talks about how Jesus goes into a better place to secure a more full redemption for us. Number two, it was exclusive in its design, only allowing one individual access to God one time per year. So we saw through the app and the virtual experience there of the tabernacle that it was allowed for one high priest to go in there one time a year. So it was exclusive in its design. It was set up to teach the fact that we're separated because of our sin. Number three, it was also limited in its purpose. It was limited in its purpose. It was created as a, as a, as a house for God. It was created as a place for his presence to dwell. But we learn in Acts chapter 7 that there's really no man-made temple that can house God. Acts chapter 7, verse 46. Uh, It says in verse 44, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So the the idea here is that, yes, it, it contained God's presence, but certainly didn't contain God. It didn't house God. 
right? Like God talks about his presence being in heaven in the throne room. And that's certainly where we're seeing in Hebrews chapter nine that Jesus goes to make atonement for our sins. He goes into the better sanctuary. Number four, it was limited in its effects. It only addressed the outward or external, but was unable to fix the inward, okay? And so we said that people could bring these sacrifices and they could offer them and they could get external cleansing, but it couldn't really affect the conscience, that there was still a hole in the heart that, that couldn't completely be filled with the animal sacrifices. There was still an emptiness. There was still the, the knowledge that these sacrifices will have to continue. So it was effective, but limited in its effects. Number five, it was limited in its scope. It only addressed the unintentional sins of the people. Numbers chapter 15 is a passage that helps us to see this. And we'll talk about unintentional versus intentional when we get into our application. But in Numbers chapter 15, verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity, his iniquity shall be on him. That's in Numbers chapter 15. Back in Hebrews chapter 10, we'll get into this next week and probably learn a little bit more about this and what this concept means. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This idea of unintentional versus intentional, I think carries the idea of premeditation. Is it something that I've set my heart to do? Is it something that I've become intentional with my actions? David talks in Psalm chapter 51. He talks about how, God, you're not interested in my sacrifices right now, right? You're interested in a broken heart, a contrite heart. You're interested in my repentance and my confession because there was a lot of premeditation within his sin, Right? There was a lot of premeditation. He, he set his heart to do certain things that he wanted to do. Right? And so these sacrifices, there wasn't really a sacrifice to bring, meaning you, you wouldn't have a situation where I think you would have uh, maybe like a boyfriend and a girlfriend who are, who are living together that could then bring a sacrifice and say, sorry about that, sorry about that, sorry about that. Right? Like, like you've set your heart against God's commands to do something there. Right? And so it wasn't that there was provision made where you could come and be excused for that. Now, there were certainly ways for you to be unintentional in some of those sins, but when there was a, a heart set against certain things, the Bible doesn't describe sacrifices that were available for that. So it was limited in its scope and what it could do. Number six, it was limited in its success. Think about this. The greatest sacrifice offered every year by the, by the high priest of Israel, man, all it was good for was the sins for that year. And he was going to have to do it again. The best sacrifice of the year was only good enough for that year. And you have to do it again the next year. Number seven, it represented sacrifices that could only hold back the wrath of God, but could never satisfy it. We saw this in Romans chapter three, that God in his forbearance, he passed over the sins of the old so that he could pour out his wrath upon Jesus and so all those animal sacrifices did was kind of hold his wrath at bay until Jesus came. 
It could never extinguish God's wrath. It could never make God's wrath go away like Jesus does. Jesus absorbs God's wrath. He is our propitiation, meaning that he satisfies God's wrath on our behalf. So there was some flaws in the tabernacle that are certainly evident here. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9. And let's start reading again in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behold, the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Kind of summarize that section. Man was cut off from God because of his sin, and God regulated how he could access him through that high priest. Verse six, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Remember, he's trying to build an argument as to why we leave the old covenant and move into the new covenant. And he's saying, man, as long as that old thing stands, we don't have direct access to God. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here we're finding out that the blood of Jesus is better. It says, hey, if the blood of animals and goats and heifers had a purpose, how much greater is the purpose of Jesus who willingly offers himself, right? You didn't have any animals that lined up and said, I love my master so much, I'll be willing to go to the the temple today, or I'll be willing to go to the tabernacle today, right? Like they went and picked those animals out themselves and it was against the animal's will to go and and do this deed. Jesus willingly gives him his life. His blood is better. Now the blood of animals had a purpose. How much greater is the purpose of Jesus's blood? Even the idea here, the ashes of the heifer, it was used when uh, there was defilement by the people about being around like even like dead bodies. They would have to go and be purified from this. And they had this stuff on hand to even use as an act of purification. It says all that stuff had purpose. Think about how much greater the purpose of Jesus is. All right. So let's talk from an application standpoint with our notes. I'll give you three points. Number one, we need to worship gratefully because Jesus's blood is superior. Worship gratefully because Jesus's blood is superior. For our kids, be thankful that Jesus saves us unlike animal sacrifices. And again, this is where we have to really spend some time meditating on this because this is all we've ever experienced. And so sometimes it's hard to be thankful for something that you've always had access to. But what we're being told here, Jesus's blood is better than anything the blood of goats and calves could do in the Old Testament. 
because their blood, their ashes purified the flesh, the outside. How much more does Jesus purify us on the inside? He purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, verse 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So number one under this, his blood retroactively saves those under the old covenant and proactively saves those under the new covenant. What does that mean? Everybody in the Old Testament is saved by Jesus. Everybody in the New Testament is saved by Jesus. Nobody in the Old Testament is saved by animal sacrifices. Everybody's saved by the sacrifice of Jesus. His blood retroactively saves those under the old covenant, proactively saves those under the new covenant. Number two, his blood atones for sin eternally rather than annually. It says, in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His sin works for eternity. He doesn't have to do it every year like the high priest Number three, his blood cleanses our conscience. His blood cleanses our conscience, which is what we saw in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Jesus or or of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? Number four, his blood reaches into heaven. There's some debate as to what exactly is happening here and why does heaven need to be purified in any sense? Um, I think we have to keep in mind that one, Sin did occur in heaven with, um, with Satan and his angels rebelling against God, right? And so you have that issue going on in there. But we know from Colossians chapter 1 that another author references this idea. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So there's some aspects where his blood reaches into heaven, which certainly wasn't the case with the animal sacrifices being offered in the tabernacle. Number five, his blood enables him to become our mercy seat. I've shared this with you before, but I love the fact that the New Testament connects Jesus with the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant. In Romans chapter three, verse 25, and this is where the original languages can bring such deep meaning to passages for us. And so I don't know Hebrew, I don't know Greek, and I'm thankful that I live in a day and age where there's enough resources out there where you don't have to have an extensive knowledge of it. Romans 3.25 is one of those passages that we get deeper meaning. It says, um, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It says that God put him forward as a propitiation. The propitiation idea is him satisfying God's wrath. And it's the same word used, same word used for mercy seat here in Hebrews chapter nine. So when we talk about the mercy seat and the cherubim and the, the sacrifices and the blood being sprinkled for the people, that, that mercy seat, the top of the box of the Ark of the Covenant where so much took place, it's the same word used for what Jesus is for us. He's our propitiation. He is our mercy seat. He offers himself upon it for our sins, right? The same word used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. He is our mercy seat. He is where God's wrath is dealt with. He is the location where God's wrath is executed. So we should worship gratefully for this. And again, we've always had access to this knowledge. We've always had access to the new covenant. We've grown up in the new covenant. So it requires us to kind of think back, okay, what was life like in the old covenant for us to fully appreciate what Jesus' sacrifice does? but it's certainly something that we're called to do so that we can worship gratefully. Number two, serve faithfully because you have been fully saved to do so. For our kids, be ready to serve Jesus because he saves us. We're called to serve faithfully because you have been fully saved to do so. Back in Hebrews chapter nine, he's not just giving us a lesson about the tabernacle to impress us with his knowledge. He's helping the people who are reading this letter to see what they're called to be and what they are called to do. He says that Jesus comes and without blemish purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Okay, so we've said this before. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved to do good works. Our good works come after salvation, right? We are saved for those things according to Ephesians chapter 2. So here, he kind, of, he kind of brings it all to, to a head and says, look, Jesus came to be the better sacrifice, to be the better uh, representation in the tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle. Why? So that you could be purified from dead works to serve the living God faithfully. 1 Peter chapter 1 carries the same idea. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter says, man, you were called for this. You were called and elected for this. To what? To be obedient to Jesus, to be sanctified by the Spirit, to serve him. You skip down to verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls for, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Man, Peter's saying all the same things just in some different language. He's saying, you were saved for this. You were saved by the blood of Jesus, not by the blood of anything else, not by the work of anything else. Saved by Jesus to love, to serve, to be faithful in serving the living God. Okay? So we have a responsibility to serve faithfully because we have been fully saved to do so. That leaves me with two points to give you under that. One, our dead works should be decreasing and our intentional sins should be minimal. Our dead works should be decreasing and our intentional sins should be minimal. We've been saved and purified from dead works. And that could be uh, several different things. One, the idea of dead works being those works that would be done to, to try to earn God's favor, right? Like we don't, we don't work for God out of compulsion that, that we have to do this in order to earn his favor. Jesus has done that for us. We instead do it out of a response of love that we've been called to do this now and so we can serve him faithfully, right? But also any works done in sin are simply dead works too because they bring about death, right? Like the wages of sin is death. And so we've been purified and set free those type of works as well. And we also should be moving away from these intentional sins, sins that we set our heart to do against God out of rebellion. And there's a difference between acts of sin that are simply a, um, a fruit or a reflection of the fact that we're still a work in progress, right? Like um, I can come home from work and have had a difficult day and express frustration and anger and shortness with my kids because I'm still a sinful individual, right? Um, but if I take steps to be intentional, to bring about revenge towards somebody because of anger set in my heart, that's, that's a little bit different. That's different, right? Like that's different than me going about my daily business and my sin kind of coming out and reflecting itself in daily life and me showing my imperfections versus me premeditating to do sinful things. I mean, those should be minimal at best. And certainly burden of proof increases for you to show how you've been radically changed if those things are excessive in your life. Those things should be minimal and they should certainly be decreasing as well. We're a work in progress. We are being sanctified and we will certainly continue to reflect sinful tendencies in our, in our life. But to, to have premeditated desires to go and do things that are disobedient. I mean, we, we have this conversation with our kids sometimes, right? And, and for us, our kids have yet to express a, a faith in Jesus. But you'll see patterns where you know, like you intentionally did this. You knew what you were supposed to do and you intentionally went against what you were instructed to do. Man, with the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, those things should be decreasing and should certainly be on the side of the minimal side versus the excessive side in our life. Number two, our daily acts should be priestly. So from the sinful side, those things should be decreasing drastically in our life. From the positive side of things, our daily acts should be viewed very priestly from what we see in the Old Testament. First Peter chapter two, verse five. So we don't come see priests here at church and we don't bring sacrifices. But Peter says, that's because you've become a priest yourself. 
in verse 4 of chapter 2, as you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right, so our daily acts, the things that we do to serve God are viewed very much like a priest offering sacrifices. We're not offering animal sacrifices. We're offering daily acts of service as priest of God now. And then lastly, number three, prepare adequately because judgment and Jesus are both coming. And it's imperative that we understand the connections between the old covenant and the new covenant because we're reminded here in Hebrews chapter nine that it's appointed for man to die. And it's appointed for man to be judged upon his death. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For our kids, be looking forward to the return of Jesus who is coming soon. A couple of points under this. Number one, an appointed time is coming for our death and we cannot escape it. Even Jesus' death was appointed. In Acts chapter two, we find out that the death of Jesus was certainly according to God's plan. It was at the right time, the right place, the right point in history. Every man's death is appointed and judgment comes upon that. And so we need to be aware that, man, we're certainly gonna give account for our life and we wanna be prepared to do so. An appointed time is coming for our death. We cannot escape it. And number two, an appointed time is coming for his return and we must be awaiting it. We're told here that Jesus is coming, but not to do the same thing that he did previously. He's not that kind of priest. He doesn't do the same things over and over, right? He's not coming to deal with sin, the author of Hebrews tells us. It says that he's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The realities of this new covenant give us every reason to eagerly wait his return. There's no fear for us that are believers, right? Because we know that our sin has been dealt with. So we don't have to fear the return of Jesus. We don't have to fear that Jesus might come back today if we're truly a believer. We ought to be eager for that to happen because we know when he comes back, he's like the priest coming out of the the tabernacle saying, hey, the sacrifice was accepted. I'm still alive and and God accepted it. Jesus's return is similar to that. The celebration that took place for Israel, there was a big party that was thrown on the day of atonement when the the high priest came out and was alive because it meant, man, God's wrath has been held back for another year. And there was a celebration that took place. Man, we should eagerly await the return of our high priest too. We know that his sacrifice has been accepted. We can certainly wait eagerly, not in fearful anticipation like the children of Israel. Is he gonna come out alive? Is he not gonna come out alive? We know he's coming back alive and we should certainly be eager for that. Some application questions for us. Number one, what unintentional sins am I most often guilty of? And am I regularly confessing them and fighting against them? What unintentional sins am I most often guilty of? And am I regularly confessing them and fighting against them? Specifically in the area of the, conf- of the fighting, fighting piece, right? So, and I'm just using this as an example. I don't think that I come home and lose my cool with my kids. Um, often, maybe sometimes, right? Um, but if I know that that is a daily struggle, that, that the pressures of work often breed frustration and anger in me when I get home, I can keep living in that state and, and I'm not intentionally trying to do it, but 
unintentionally, it's happening on a regular basis, I can step back and say, okay, what are some intentional steps that I can take to limit the unintentional reactions that are taking place in that setting, right? So for me, using this as an example, if I have a tendency to come home frustrated with my kids, lose my cool, express anger and frustration towards them, there's some steps that I can potentially take before I ever get home whether that's simply stopping and praying and being aware that I'm about to step into a setting where I typically unintentionally sin and take some measures to really pray through that, that's gonna help that environment greatly if I'm being intentional with my unintentional sinning. So I want us to kind of take some time to think back and say, okay, when am am I typically reacting sinfully in situations? Maybe I'm not intentionally doing it. I'm not premeditating to do this. But if I look back and reflect on my day, here's what unintentional sins look like in my life. And here's where they're typically taking place in my life. What are some steps that I can take to push back against that sinful aspect of me that's still being fixed? Because we're all very sinful. And we'll all be very sinful until Jesus comes back and completely redeems us. But I think oftentimes we're more aware of the intentional sins and we're very unaware of the unintentional sins. Like we kind of forget about the unintentional sins. And if you think about confessing sins, like we might confess the things that we know we intentionally did or maybe the bigger unintentional things that we do. But most of us probably aren't sensitive enough to think through the things that we do on a regular basis that hurt other people that are sinful at their root. And we just consistently daily go about these unintentional sins. And we don't have to offer sacrifices for them because they're cleansed, they're forgiven but we certainly need to be aware of them. Why? Because we've been purified and saved to serve a living God. And if we're committing these unintentional sins constantly, we're not probably doing a very good job of serving the living God. So what are some unintentional sins that are maybe unique to you? And what are some ways to fight against those things and to see sanctification take place in your life? All right. Number two, are there any willful patterns of sin that I am allowing in my life that need to be extinguished? Is there anything that's flat out sinful, you know it's sinful, and you're just simply tolerating it in your life? And based on my understanding of scripture, like there wouldn't have been a sacrifice to really bring for that. Like you've just intentionally set your heart in rebellion towards God. And I I, I don't think that a Christian is necessarily exempt from time periods in their life for that. I mean, I think they're probably few and far between and minimal at best if somebody is truly a believer, that they can't stay in that state for real long before some type of conviction or some type of discipline sets in to correct that. But I do think that there are potential possibilities for there to be patterns of sin where we're just willfully tolerating something. We're not confessing it. We're just kind of content with it, okay with it. And we're even a little bit intentional with keeping it there. Is there anything like that in your life that needs to be removed? Then I want to close with this thought from James chapter four. You know, as I was sitting down with AJ last night, we were working through that tabernacle thing. Like it it allows you like on your own to just kind of tour the tabernacle without having to click through the process. And so you can actually like zoom in and you can like, make your way through it. And it felt kind of weird, like, okay, we're about to go into the most holy place and this is only for the high priest, right? But like it, it lets the curtains come back and you, gotta, you get to kind of peek in there, right? 
What's crazy about James chapter four is that it's encouraging something that is made possible because of Jesus, right? And it's in relationship to our sin. And it says, um, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Man, I think that, that purifying of our conscience, the peace that we're supposed to feel, the lack of guilt, the lack of despair, that stuff is true, but I think it only increases in its effectiveness in our life the more that we think about it, contemplate it, meditate on it, right? We talked about our assurance of salvation. If we're saved, we're truly saved. Our confidence, though, increases the more we come to understand God's faithfulness, right? So we're saved. We're always gonna be saved if we're truly saved. But my confidence in that assurance increases the more that I understand about God. Same with his forgiveness. He forgives us of our sins, but we could be living in kind of a state of guilt and despair because we don't fully understand and appreciate that forgiveness. The peace of conscience comes from understanding his forgiveness. The fact that he has made a way for us to draw near to him and he will draw near to us. And it's a beautiful thing that most of us have lived under a long time, right? A lot of us, all of us that are saved have lived in the new covenant. A lot of us got saved at a very early age in life where even pre-Jesus was very short. And so most of our life we've lived under the new covenant, right? Let's let's take some time to pause and, and reflect upon the fact that we are called and allowed to draw near to God. We can approach him with confidence knowing that we have been forgiven because his blood is better. His blood is better than all the sacrifices before him. He's in a better sanctuary, a better tabernacle where he goes before God in his house, in his throne room to advocate for us. And he's there today advocating for us as our great high priest. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you so much for the work of Jesus and what he accomplishes for us. God, I know this chapter is is pretty weighty and there's a lot of expectation that you know a lot of Jewish background to fully grasp it. So God, I pray that everything that's been said today would not be lost on, on those who maybe don't fully understand that background. God, I pray that even through the, the pictures and the experience through the app would help us to, to better understand the context of this chapter, that previously your people had to worship you in a specific way, and that even in worshiping you in that specific way that you outlined, there were some deficiencies in it. God, we're thankful that the tabernacle teaches us how serious sin is and how it separates us from you. God, we're thankful that Jesus comes to be a better priest in a better tabernacle, to bring better blood to the table. God, we're thankful that we can be completely, fully forgiven and purified because of the work of Jesus and that his sacrifice was done once and for all, that we don't need it yearly, that we get it for eternity. And God, I pray that in light of everything that we're seeing in Hebrews, that it would cause us to worship in a very grateful and thankful way that we'd be very appreciative of what Jesus brings to us in the new covenant. God, I pray that it would cause us to really desire to serve you faithfully from a positive sense that we would see every day as an opportunity to be a priest that offers spiritual sacrifices to you and the choices and decisions that we make. God, from a negative side, help us to see that 
um, our dead works and our intentional sins and unintentional sins should be decreasing drastically in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. We recognize that we'll always be imperfect and that we'll always be in need of your forgiveness until Jesus returns and we get those glorified bodies. But God, help us to be very intentional to fight against that sin, to not be content with it in our life, but to really seek to weed it out. God, I pray that you would increase our our eagerness and our desire to see Jesus come back too. Help us to be unattached from the things of this world. God, help us to be very confident in anticipating the return of Jesus because we know it is going to be a time to celebrate when our high priest comes back because we will know, we can be confident that our sins have been fully forgiven forever. We praise you and thank you for this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.